0: Praise the Lord. Well, we'll remind you as we um, pick up with this series on how to be led by the Holy Ghost, that our text scriptures are in Romans chapter 8 and Proverbs chapter 20. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. Then in Proverbs 20 verse 27, it says, The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. A modern paraphrase says, the spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord. I like that. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, the guiding lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now we've looked at, uh, to some degree, the, uh, the, scripture where, the scriptures that tell us about the threefold nature of man. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to start with the outside, or start with the inside of man and work his way out. because the inside of man is the eternal man. Paul calls him the inward man. Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart. That's an amazing fact, and it's one that, uh, that we need to recognize if we're going to grow and develop spiritually the way that God intends for us to. It's an amazing fact to realize take note of the fact that redemption the new birth has absolutely no effect on the mind or the body it's the redemption of the eternal part of man the real part of man the spirit we sometimes talk about man being spirit soul and body a more accurate way to describe that is man is a spirit he has a soul and he lives in a body now in order to redeem man from spiritual death Jesus paid the price in his own blood for that redemption to take place. But think about it. That redemption only takes place or only affects the inward man. It only affects the spirit. We know this from a couple of different sources in Scripture. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I'm sorry, he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, and he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Other translations say spiritual worship. In other words, he's saying you need to do something with your body because the new birth hadn't affected your body. See, if the new birth had given us a new body, we wouldn't have to present it to God. It'd already be presented to God by the blood of Jesus. But it hasn't been. Then he goes on in verse 2 of Romans 12, and he says, "...be not conformed to this world." But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, he's writing to born again, spirit filled Christians. He's saying their minds haven't been renewed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or determine or know what is the acceptable, the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, we know that the will of God is always going to be the leading of the Holy Ghost, don't we? Well, then let's insert that definition be transformed by the renewing of your mind renewing it to the word that you would know the guiding or the leading of the Holy Ghost be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would know the will of God or the leading of the Holy Ghost now we've got three different phrases concerning the the work of the Christian the work that the Christian is supposed to do regarding his mind or his soul. The soul is defined in scripture as the mind, the will, and the emotions. And those three phrases are, as Paul said in Romans 12, too, the renewing of the mind, which comes by the word of God. In James 1, 21, it talks about the saving of the soul. And he's clearly writing to Christians. He says they've been born of the spirit. But he tells them that their souls haven't been saved. And then in Psalm 23, the psalmist says, the Lord restores my soul. Now in all three of those phrases, the renewing of the mind, the saving of the soul, or the restoring of the soul, if we think of it like we would restore a piece of furniture or an old house or a car or something like that, then that makes perfect sense. Because if we take a car that's in disrepair or a house that's in disrepair, maybe a historic landmark or something like that, If we save it, then that means we restore it to its original condition. If we renew it, that means we change it from the old dilapidated condition and make it like it was when it was new. If we restore it, it means what we've said before. We're bringing it back to original condition. Now, Psalm 23 is very interesting to me because David is saying by the Holy Ghost that a work of the Lord being our shepherd... Meaning the day that we live in now, the day of salvation, the day when we've been born again by the Spirit of God, made new creatures in Christ, our spirits have been made new in Christ. David is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say that the Lord restores our soul. That means there's the potential for your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions to be brought back to original condition. Well, what original condition? I believe it's talking about the same state as Adam had before the fall. Clearly, that's not the case now. Clearly, that's not the case with anyone who has not renewed their mind to the word. We know that the born-again experience, making Jesus the Lord of your life, changes your spirit, but it has no effect at all on your mind. It has no effect on your soul. Now, Paul gives us, in my opinion, one of the greatest examples of somebody... Who renewed his mind to the truth of the word. As an example to us. You know how that Paul persecuted the church. He put people in prison. He put people to death. When he meets Jesus. You talk about it. The ultimate in renewing the mind. He knows nothing about Jesus. He just knows when the light shines around about him. Him and his company on the way to Damascus. That there's a power at work that he's not familiar with. He hears the voice speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul has to ask who he is. Who art thou, Lord? He knows he's the power of God in some respect, but he doesn't know who's talking to him. Jesus identifies himself. He said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. Then Saul says, what would you have me to do, Lord? And God gives him direction. The Lord spoke to him and said, go into the city and it'll be told you there what to do. From that point forward, Saul is on a journey and on a quest that lasts for the rest of his life to know who Jesus is. Now, he didn't have the Bible like we do. He had to get it by direct revelation from the Spirit of God. And he wrote most of the New Testament that we have record of so that we can learn to know God too. But think about the, the process of the renewing of the mind that took place in Saul. He goes from the chief persecutor of the church to one of its greatest preachers and, and apostles. And along the way, we see some things in Paul's ministry, how he learned to follow the Holy Ghost. Now we'll pick up with some things that we talked about last week, and if you weren't here last week, we went into great detail about Paul and uh, at least the first part of his journey to Rome, or or getting in place to go to Rome. But turn back with me, we'll hit a couple of the high spots and, and then add on some things to it tonight. Acts chapter 19, he's in the middle of his greatest revival, his greatest ministry results in the city of Ephesus. He spent about three and a half years in Ephesus, and toward the end of that three and a half years. Again, as I said, in the middle of the greatest revival that he's experienced anywhere at any time in his ministry. It says in verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Paul purposed in the Spirit. Now most translations, I think we talked about this some. Most translations talk about Paul making a decision. But it's going further than that. I like Richelieu's translation on this verse. It says, the Spirit of God moved Paul to plan. The Spirit of God moved Paul to plan. This is not just Paul making a decision of what he wants to do next or how he wants things to go. This is the Spirit of God directing him. Now, we don't know how he directed him. We have to assume that it's the same way he directs all of us. As Paul identified in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We have to assume that that was the case because he doesn't tell us anything else. Luke, who spent a lot of time with Paul and is part of Paul's company and was part of the group that tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem and therefore going to Rome, is the author of this this book of Acts. And if there had been some kind of spectacular vision or writing in the sky or something else that was the source or the origin of Paul's leading... I think he'd have told us, but he doesn't. So we have to assume that it's the Holy Ghost bearing witness with his spirit. So Paul, notice what Paul says. Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Rome, or I'm sorry, to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, notice what he knows he's supposed to do. I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem through Macedonia and Achaia And after Jerusalem, I'm supposed to go to Rome. He's got an inward witness of where God wants him to end up. So then it tells us that he leaves this place. There's a riot that begins and he has to leave town. His ministry is abruptly ended, but he had direction from God to to go a different direction anyway. And he spends three months in Macedonia. And at the end of those three months, he comes back through Ephesus or close to Ephesus. He didn't come through the city. But notice... In chapter 20, he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus, the ones that he left behind when he left town, he calls them together and notice what he tells them. Verse 22, chapter 20, verse 22, and now behold, I go bound in the spirit. Now notice the phrase he uses, bound in the spirit, bound in the spirit. Now what does that mean to you? See, to me it means he knows he's supposed to do it and he can't do anything else. He can't escape this leading of the Lord that he knows that he has on the inside of his heart or within his spirit. He said, and now I go bound in the spirit. This is not just an idea he's got for where he wants to go. This is not just a ministry idea or a program he's come up with on his own. I'm bound in the spirit, he says. Unto Jerusalem... Not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save or accept. Here's what I do know. Don't know everything about it. God didn't show me everything about the plan. But here's what I do know. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city. In every city. Well, he must be talking about in every city that he's been in. In the last three months. From the time he purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. So all the cities of Macedonia and Achaia must be these cities he's talking about except the only thing I know is that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me how does the Holy Ghost say that that's what he said he said the Holy Ghost is telling him in every city that bonds and afflictions are waiting for him in Jerusalem we don't have any record of how he said it but we would have to assume that he said it Witnessed it to certain people who communicated that information to Paul. How else would it be? And then notice the next verse. But none of these things move me. None of these things move me. I'm not moved by the trouble that's ahead. Well, folks, you want to find an example to live by, this is it. The trouble that the Holy Ghost tells me is ahead does not move me. Okay, that's it. You can go home. That'd be enough to go home with. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I may finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, he's saying, trouble ahead of me doesn't move me. The thought or the possibility of losing my life, that doesn't move me either. Well, what does move a guy like that? Finishing God's plan for his ministry. Finishing God's plan for his ministry. What a guy that God picked to be one of the founding apostles or foundations of the church. Okay, let's uh, skip over to chapter 21. We'll hit this real quickly. We spent a lot of time on it last week. It tells us about Agabus coming down from Judea, verse 10. There came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus, and when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. Now, notice Agabus is not saying, This is what God told me, or This is my idea, and here's why. He says, this is what the Holy Ghost says. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place, that the place he's talking about is Philip's house, who had seven daughters that, were, uh, that would prophesy themselves. They knew the voice of God too. When we heard these things, we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul. Everybody said. Everybody except Agabus. Agabus is the only one that comes in and says, here's what the Holy Ghost says and leaves it alone. Now most people that, can, that fancy themselves to be modern day prophets want to tell you what to do. But show me anywhere in the Bible where it says, for as many as are led by prophets, they are the sons of God. Agabus knows that the way to be led by the Holy Ghost is by the inward witness. He knows he has enough experience and maturity in ministry to know that God doesn't tell him things to direct people. He has revelation, but the revelation is not about what Paul should do. That's none of Agabus' business. Neither is it any of somebody else's business what you're supposed to do. pastor Mike if we're not supposed to listen to prophets to get direction what are we supposed to do develop a sensitive ear to the voice of the Holy Ghost within us within our own spirits so that we know the voice of God for ourselves otherwise what are you going to do when there's no prophet around so the, the, the group Paul's company now starts begging him don't go Paul don't go to Jerusalem don't go Then Paul answered, verse 13, What mean you to weep and to break my heart? Now why are they breaking his heart? They're trying to talk him out of what he knows he's supposed to do. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Does he think he's going to die at Jerusalem? well remember over in Acts chapter 19 verse 21 it said the spirit of the Lord moved Paul to plan to go to Jerusalem through Macedonia and through Achaia and after he's been to Jerusalem he must see Rome he's got just as much an inward witness about getting to Rome as he has going to Jerusalem so what is this telling us? it's telling us how the rest of the group is interpreting what Agabus has said they're interpreting the binding the that's going to be taking place. Paul being put in chains or bondage or whatever. However, they did things in those days, as being jeopardizing his life. Paul doesn't. He says, "If that's what you think is going to happen to me, that's no big deal. I'm ready for that." But he also knows that the Spirit of God moving into plan to go to to Rome just as much as he did to go to Jerusalem. So notice the next verse. It says, so we, uh, Luke is speaking for himself and the rest of Paul's company. He said, and when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. That very simply means Paul convinced them that it was the will of God for for him to go more than they were convinced that it was the will of God for him not to go. Now who would know? Paul would. See, we see things that people are doing and we see perhaps down the road and the consequences of what they're doing. We try to avoid and detour everything that's bad for the people that we care about. But each one of us is supposed to know the will of the Lord for himself. Amen. So what happens? Paul starts heading out towards Jerusalem. He makes his way to Jerusalem, gets into the temple. The Jews stir up trouble against him, make false accusations against him. And so then he's taken in captivity by the chief officer of the temple. Paul makes his defense. It creates an uproar and so much so that the the Roman soldiers that are there on guard at the temple trying to keep the Jews in line and make sure there's no uprising and so forth he's afraid that Paul's going to be pulled apart between the two groups, Sadducees and Pharisees. So he tells everybody to go home and keeps Paul overnight. Now notice in chapter 22, uh, well, I don't want to go into things in chapter 22. Look with me over to chapter 23. After Paul is taken captive for his own safety by the Roman guard. Notice what happens in the middle of the night. Verse 11. and It says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Paul, what are you doing here? I warned you in every city you've been in not to come here because the Holy Ghost told you time after time after time that this was going to happen. Now, folks, if that was the case, here's Jesus appearing to Paul in the night, this would have been a perfect opportunity for the Lord to get all over him for for not heeding the warnings. But notice what Jesus says to him. Be of good cheer, Paul. Happy, happy, happy for you. Now, let me take a little side journey here. Notice God's idea of your happiness has nothing to do with your surroundings. The time when God thinks you're supposed to be happy has nothing to do with whether or not you're comfortable. I'm sure Paul was not comfortable being held in jail. Even though he's not being held as a prisoner, jail is not a fun thing even if you're visiting. So Jesus says, stood by him and says, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, that was earlier in that day, so thou must bear witness also at Rome. So must thou also bear witness at Rome. Now there's a, a group of more than 40 Jews that take an oath and bind themselves together and say, I'm not gonna, we're not going to eat or drink again until Paul is dead. So they conspire with the chief priest on how to get Paul brought to them and then they'll kill him on the way. But Paul's nephew finds out about the, the, the plan and tells the chief of the Roman guard and he protects Paul. So he sends him to Caesarea where the provincial governor is named Felix. Felix is told by the Roman guard what the story is about how these people want to kill Paul for a matter of custom, Jewish custom not something against Rome. So the Jews come to Caesarea and they make their case against Paul And then Paul answers for himself, Felix doesn't know what to do. And so he sends the Jews back on their way and says, I don't find anything in your accusations that are worthy of this man's death. So he sends the Jews back to Jerusalem and keeps Paul for two years. Now folks, I want you to stop and think about back in in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After these things, the Spirit of the Lord moves Paul to plan after he had been through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem and after that to see Rome. Why didn't the Holy Ghost tell him how long this was going to be? When Jesus appears to him after he's taken captive in Rome and says, Be of good cheer, Paul, why didn't he say, Oh, by the way, you're going to be in jail in the Roman, the provincial governor's house for two years? seems to me like Jesus would have said, well, Paul, be happy for the next couple of days, but then trouble's going to start, and then you've got a two-year stretch of hard road. Doesn't say anything about that. He keeps him, Felix keeps him long enough to where his term in office ends, and Festus takes over in his place. Festus comes into office as the new governor of the province, He hears about Paul from the Jews. The Jews see this as their opportunity to stir up trouble again after two years. Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul, so he hears what Paul has to say. Festus wants to appease the Jews. He's new in office, and he doesn't want to create any trouble or have any trouble created under his watch. So he says to Paul at the behest of the Jews, well, why don't I just send you back to Jerusalem? Well, people are still laying in wait to kill him. And Paul knows this. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Shortly thereafter, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice come to visit the new governor of Judea. Festus tells them about Paul. Paul testifies of Jesus before before Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. And they all agree... Agrippa is the, the higher authority. and they all agreed that if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he'd be let go. So after two and a half years from the time that the Spirit of God moved Paul to plan, it brings you to chapter 27 when Paul's journey to Rome begins. How many of you would have thought that Acts 19:21 would have led to a two-year span or a two-year delay? Or what the Holy Ghost showed Paul that he was supposed to do. Nobody thinks like that. The stories we hear about are when the Lord speaks to us. And within 24 hours the doors are open and things work out and we step into God's plan for our lives. You know what happens to most people? They give up during the two and a half years. I believe one of the reasons the Holy Ghost witnessed Paul in every city that bonds and afflictions were awaiting him in Jerusalem is because it forced Paul to make the decision. I don't think think he, he made a different decision he would have otherwise. But it forced him to make the decision and face the facts that were ahead so that he determined beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was committed You hear a lot of people nowadays talking about the passion that they have to serve God. Well, I've got just such a passion, Pastor Mike, to serve God. Commitment trumps passion every day. Because passion means I'm excited about doing something for God. Well, what happens when that excitement wears off? Then what are you going to do? A lot of people get excited about this new life of walking by faith. They hear the stories of healings and miracles. and Things in their lives, circumstances that change. They get excited to walk by faith. What happens when that excitement wears off? Because it will. Then what are you going to do? I'm not looking for people that are excited to follow God. I'm looking for people that are committed to follow God. Those are the ones that last. So chapter 27... Paul starts on his journey to Rome. Notice it's by choice, not because he's forced to. It's by choice because he appealed to Caesar. It tells a little bit about the early part of the journey. Uh, but notice in verse 9, it says, Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was already passed, the clock is still ticking. Now it's more than two and a half years. Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Now notice that phrase. He says, Sirs, I perceive. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, now the Holy Ghost told me that this ship is going to be torn up and you're going to lose all the cargo and maybe people's lives. That's the thing I want to get across to you folks. This thing started off in Acts 19 verse 21 is a spiritual perception. The Spirit moved Paul to plan. He perceived in his heart. He wasn't told by the Holy Ghost. It wasn't the Holy Ghost saying to Paul. It wasn't Jesus appearing in a vision or an angel delivering a message. He perceived that this was God's plan for his life. The next step of his ministry. Now he perceives that this voyage is going to be with much hurt not only to the cargo but also to people's lives. What's the Holy Ghost doing? He's warning him. Now what can Paul do about this? Not a thing in the world. So why warn him? Why would he perceive in his heart that this voyage would be with much trouble? To prepare him. To prepare him. Just like he's been preparing him by witnessing in every city that bonds and afflictions were waiting for him in Jerusalem. God will prepare you. Most of the time when we get a witness that there's trouble ahead, we try to avoid the trouble. And that may not be what God's witnessing to us at all. He may not be saying, turn the other way. He may be saying, get ready for what's ahead. There's a verse of scripture that I've been quoting for years In Psalm 91, um, one of the parts of the verse is, I will deliver him and I will honor him. And I've been quoting that for a long, long time. And just here recently, within the last couple of weeks, I was quoting that in the morning. I said, Lord, you said that you would deliver me and you'd honor me. The Holy Ghost spoke up on the inside of me and he said, What does that mean? I'm thinking, well, you said it, you should know. (laughs) But I realized that the Holy Ghost is trying to get me to realize something. So I looked up that word deliver. I always thought deliver meant rescue or to bring about an escape or whatever, so I never paid any attention to it. That word deliver means equip you for the fight. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) I liked it better when it was escape. And that's the way we always want it, isn't it? We want God to pluck us out of the middle of trouble. But there's also a verse of Scripture that says, if you faint the day of adversity, your strength is small. See, God would rather have you equipped for the fight and committed to see things through than to have to pluck you out of the middle of trouble every time you get there. Because if you develop the strength to stand in the middle of the fight and to see it through, the devil is never a problem for you again. Are you out there? What kind of Christian do you want to be? You want to be the one that has to be plucked out of the middle of trouble? Or the one that takes the word of God and stands your ground and sees things through? Paul was the second kind. So he said, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt, not only to the cargo and the ship itself, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owners of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. Well, they wound up getting in the middle of a big storm. They wound up having to throw out everything that's not nailed down. There's no break in the storm day after day after day. We don't know exactly how long the storm is. It seems to me, if I read it correctly, that the storm was about three weeks, around about three weeks. That's a long time to be in the middle of a storm and a ship being tossed to and fro. If I can say this delicately, if you're prone to seasickness, you've lost everything you had a long time ago. Verse 20, it says, And when neither sun nor stars appeared in many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. There's not a sailor in the group that believes they can make this, make it out of this. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not lose from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Remember in verse 10 I told you that I perceived that this trouble, this voyage was going to be with much trouble? You should have listened. I like this guy. A little bit of I told you so is good. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Everybody has just gotten to their most hopeless point. He says, "Be good, be of good cheer. Nothing to be afraid of here, nothing to be down in the mouth about. He sounds like he's talking, about, talking like Jesus now. Jesus told Paul to be of good cheer when he's in jail. He's telling them to be of good cheer in the middle of a big storm, the biggest storm they've ever experienced. Now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall, not be, a, there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. We'll lose the ship, but you'll, you'll live. How do you know, Paul? For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and, lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Now that is almost exactly what Jesus said to him two years before, two and a half years before, two and a half plus years before. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me here in Jerusalem, so must thou also testify of me in Rome. Now the angel reminds him, You've got to be brought before Caesar. Not only that, but I've given you everybody that's on board ship. I think it's 270 something people on board. The number is given there, but I don't remember exactly what it is. What does Paul know? Paul knows there's not a big enough storm to keep him from Rome. Remember where this all started? It started with an inward witness, a spiritual perception that he needs to go to Jerusalem and after that he must see Rome. There's something about this and I don't want to make a hard and fast rule about it because I'm not sure there are hard and fast rules about spiritual things. But it seems that oftentimes, frequently, if you give yourself over to spiritual perception. The leading of the Holy Ghost by the inward witness. That's what I mean by that spiritual perception phrase. If you'll follow that spiritual perception, that inward witness, you'll get a greater confirmation down the road. God won't leave you in the lurch. He'll show you when you're on the right track. One of the things that the Holy Ghost was told to do, told to us that he would do for us, is that he'd guide us into all truth. Another translation says, and the word truth literally means all reality. It doesn't just mean the truth of the word, it means the reality of life. He'll guide you into all reality if you'll trust him to do that. So what does Paul say? He says, well, the angel told me that I must be brought before Caesar, and that he's given me your lives. In other words, you live because of me. This is one bold guy. Wherefore, sirs, I believe that it shall be even as it was told me. Now the storm's not over. And the storm continues for at least another week. And he tells them, I skipped over verse 26, he said, "Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. We're going to be shipwrecked, but you won't, you won't die, you'll live through it. But when the 14th night was come, now we don't know if that means 14 days since that point in time or the 14th day of the storm. There's different ways that you can interpret it. But it's long enough, however long it is. It says that they come upon trouble and the ship begins to break up or they're afraid the ship's going to break up. Notice in verse thirty, and as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship when they had been let down, the, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color or disguise, as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, "Except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved." Notice what Paul knows. Paul knows he's going to make it no matter what. He must be brought before Caesar. But he says, if these guys leave the ship, you'll die. So they cut loose the little boat that they were letting down, trying to get away in. And they all stayed together. Ship broke up. Everybody's life was spared, and they were cast on the island of Melita. Paul eventually made his way to Rome. We don't know how long it was that they were on the island of Melita or that it took them to sail from there the rest of the way, but we have to assume that several months... So it seems to me that a conservative estimate would be at least three years, maybe more, from the time that Acts 19.21 says the Holy Ghost witnessed to Paul to go to Jerusalem and after that to go see Rome. When, uh, when Beth and I left Brother Higgins' ministry and. June of 1984. I had a witness that it was time to go. I won't get into the circumstances behind it, but I had a witness that it was time to go, and I had a witness that God had called me to the ministry, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what he would called me to do. All I had was a witness that I was called to the ministry. And so by a process of elimination, I took Ephesians 4.11, the five-fold ministry list, And I said, Well, it's obvious that I'm not an apostle. It's obvious I'm not a prophet. It's obvious I'm not an evangelist. And pastoring doesn't seem right. So the only thing I know that I could possibly be was a teacher. So we struck out. We went on the road. I was not aware at that time of any supernatural ability to teach. My idea was that I'd just help people with the same truth that had blessed me, changed my life, maybe it changed theirs too. So we wound up going to some churches around the country, and Brother Hagin helped us a bit. He put us in the Word of Faith magazine, and that got us a couple of meetings. Some people that we knew through working for the ministry that were pastoring or had con- contacts in different churches, that got us some meetings too. And, uh, and for the next eight or nine months, I guess, We went to some churches overseas and we went to some churches in America just doing what we could to teach the word and help people. Uh, About, I don't know, maybe March of 1985, something began to change. We couldn't put a finger on it, but we knew something was going to change. Now what was interesting, we didn't realize this at the time so much. A lot of things are easier to see looking back than they are when they're going on. But the churches that God opened doors for us to be in, everything was a small church, real small church. There was one larger church, well, larger to us, it would be considered a medium-sized church, smaller than ours now. But that was the biggest church that we preached in in any of the time that we were on the road. And many of the churches that we went to, we were either the first guest ministers that the church had in because they were so young or so so small, or both. And in some cases, we were the first guest minister that they had back in after having had a bad experience with a traveling minister. So we realized, looking back at it, that we were pioneering everywhere we went in some way. But... We were doing the only thing we knew to do, and so I was just as happy as could be. I was in what I believed was the will of God for my life. So I was satisfied. But then March of 85, around about there, things began to change. I wasn't happy with it anymore. And I knew that meant that it was, something was coming and a change was coming. Here's something you need to learn, and I'm so glad I learned it from bringing around Brother Hagen. People get frustrated, and they don't realize that frustration means change. But because they get frustrated, they try to make the change. Many times, frustration is just a signal that the Holy Ghost is showing you, letting you know that there is a change coming. Well, the tough part is having to live through the frustration until he makes the change. That's where a lot of people give up. That's where a lot of people run. Because they're frustrated and they say, I can't take this anymore, so they make a change on their own they get out of the will of God. But we knew to hold steady. The rule of thumb is, if you don't know what to do next, stick with the last thing God told you to do. If he hadn't told you to do with the last thing, you're not ready for the next thing. So we kept at it, stayed with it. There were some other churches and conferences that um, by this time people were getting to know us a little bit more and... kind of built a little bit of a reputation among churches and, and so forth. And so we did some work overseas. Actually, at one time, we thought maybe we'd move overseas. Because here in the States, people were comparing you against other people and other teachers and other ministries and that kind of stuff. But overseas, people were just hungry for the Word. They didn't care who you were. We loved that. That was just great. Nobody's comparing you against who they heard last week on radio or whatever. So I was thinking maybe that was the thing to do, but didn't have any clear direction on it, so we just stayed steady. And then about uh, toward the end of July of 85, we were in from a trip, having been somewhere, and so we still live in Tulsa, and so I stopped by the offices there at Kenneth Hagan Ministries in Tulsa, stopped to see a guy that I used to work with, the guy that was my boss at... uh, the ministry in the crusade department. I was scheduled to be at a church out here. I had preached there once before about, oh, I don't know, eight months before, 10 months before maybe. And I was scheduled to be back out in another church in this area. Uh, The same church, but back out in this area. I mean, And he asked me if I'd heard about the church. And I said, no, I'm scheduled to be back in there in about six weeks. He said, oh man, he said, what a mess. He said, the pastor's run off with the secretary and the church is blown in 32 different directions. He said, there's a group of people trying to hold things together. He knew this because one of the members of the, uh, the church trying to keep things together was one of the board members at Brother Hagin's ministry. So he'd had some contact with him. But he said, oh, it's such a mess. Everybody's fighting with each other and trying to decide what to do and all this kind of stuff. Well, he and I had a running joke. I had told him one time, just kind of out of the blue, that I believe God God's plan for his life was to pastor a church that, had a, that was a troubled church and had impossible difficulties and that kind of stuff, or to pastor in a desolated area with nobody and no, nothing to do. We'd come through a little towns, you know, and on the way, on, the, on the, traveling on the road. and Needles, California is a good example. We'd travel through Needles, and I'd look at him, and I'd say, Roy, I believe God wants you to pastor here. <laughs> so it's kind of a running joke that we had with each other. Well, he picked up on the joke, and he saw that I was, when I understood the, the difficulty of the situation, he said, Mike, I believe God wants you to pastor that church. When I four months before maybe, earlier in that year at least, I'd had a witness, some kind of inward sense. There wasn't, it wasn't words, it wasn't a, a knowing, it was just kind of a, it seems like, experience. That there was a change coming. But as soon as he said that, I had a witness from the Lord that was so strong, that it was like a buzzer going on. I knew that was exactly what the change was. Well, I didn't say anything about what I had. Didn't want to admit to it. And so I finished talking with him, went home, told Beth what I'd been told about the church and the difficulties of the church. And I told her the joke that my friend had made. I said, uh, he said he believes God wants us to go out there and pastor. Which was exactly the way he said it. I believe God wants you to go out there and pastor. Well, she didn't say anything. But we compared notes a couple of days later and found out that she got the same thing in her heart when I said it to her. As I had had in my heart when he said it to me. Now folks, I don't find any scriptural evidence that God leads you through jokes. But I knew that I knew that I knew that that's what I was supposed to do. Now we're talking about spiritual perceptions. Once you know, once you've got an inward witness, what do you do then? Well, I called the board member that I was acquainted with. They lived out here at the time. They've long since moved away. And I told him that I'd heard that the church was having some trouble. And I said, does that mean that I'm canceled? He said, oh, no, 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 no. We want you to come. He said, we're looking for a pastor. Would you be interested? I said, well, I don't know. I might be. So time came around when we came out here. There was a group of people. The church had been at one time. They told me it had been at uh, an attendance of 800 people. And there were about 70, maybe 75 of them left. Now folks, you need to realize in that six weeks interim period, I've got it all figured out. I just know how this is going to go. And when I say I know, I don't mean I know on the inside. I mean I know because this is how I've got it figured out. I know. Not the Holy Ghost has shown me anything. I've got it all figured out. We're going to get together with these 70 or 75 people within a matter of, short matter of a month or two, we'll have all these 800 people gathered up together again. We'll hit the ground running, and man, won't we be something. Well, I was looking forward to preaching to these 70 or 75 people like you cannot imagine. This is the plan of God for me. Well, they were meeting in a school building at the time, and that's the hardest place I've ever ministered in my life. I'd heard Brother Hagen tell stories about preaching faith in an atmosphere of unbelief, in churches that had an atmosphere of unbelief, that was so bad that it was like throwing a rubber ball against the back wall, come back hit you in the face. I know what he means now. It was awful. It was terrible. There was no anointing on anything, there was no presence of God on anything, there was nothing. It was just terrible but I just passed it off after the service was over I thought well I gave them the word gave them the truth at least and I passed it off and I just said these people are just hurt they just need somebody to pastor them and fix things and it'll be all right." well then they took us to lunch the fellow that I knew the board member was part of the group and it was a big group there must have been 20 people that went to lunch had a big long uh, table set up they put me at toward the end and put me between the board member that I knew and another guy that I didn't know. I don't remember where we went to eat, and I certainly don't remember what I had to eat or what I ordered because I didn't get to eat anything. They kept me talking the whole time. The guy that I didn't know just peppering me with questions. And it became pretty obvious that he wanted to know if they selected me or picked me to be their pastor, how I would be inclined to run things it became pretty obvious that he wanted the board to run everything the board means him and so he was asking questions about well now what would you do about church finances i said well we'd pay our bills if we'd take care of what we needed to take care of we'd save what we didn't use for whatever plans god had for us in the future he said yeah but who would handle the money i said well, i would of course He said, well, how would you use the board? I said, related to the money? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'd make reports to him about what we're doing, but that's it. He said, you wouldn't have the board handle the money? I said, of course not. God doesn't call boards. He calls pastors. I said, the person that controls the money controls the church. I said, I would never pastor somewhere that the place wanted to try to control me. I said, I don't think that could happen anyway, but I wouldn't sign up for it. Well, that put pretty much an end to his serious questions. After that, it was just howdy do when are you leaving town? (laughs) Where are you going from here? Well, folks, I've still got this figured out. They're going to call me to be their pastor. Now, the point I'm trying to make to you is you can put your own interpretation of what the Holy Ghost is showing you and miss the thing completely. I had a leading from the Holy Ghost, but I didn't stop and find out. Now, wait a minute. What exactly does that mean, Lord? If I'd asked him, he'd have told me. So about a month goes by. We haven't heard anything. I was surprised. I thought they'd call me the next week, but they didn't. After about a month, it dawned on me that they did not want me. So I called back to my friend and said, hey, how are things going? What have you guys decided to do? He said, well, Mike, he said, I've been kind of putting up calling you. I thought, well, I know that. Now, I should back up a little bit and tell you that before this conversation took place, about two weeks before, as a matter of fact, I had something that kept going on over and over on the inside of me. What if they call somebody else? What if they want somebody else to be the pastor? Well, when the first time that thought came to me, I say thought, it was something that came up from my heart, but I didn't recognize it at the time. When the first time that came to me, I was afraid of it. Because I thought, no, 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 no. That's contrary to the plan of God for my life. That can't be. Get behind me, Satan. When it was the Holy Ghost trying to talk to me all the time. So he left me alone for a little while and came back with the thought again. Finally, after... Five or six times, I addressed the thought. Rather than just trying to resist it, I addressed the thought. And I considered it, and I thought, well, they could do that, couldn't they? Whether it's in or out of the will of God, either one, they could do that. What would I do? And I realized, when I asked the question, and folks, I can't emphasize this enough. God won't tell you what you don't ask him. The Holy Ghost is a gentleman. You ask him and he'll show you. If you don't ask him, he assumes you don't want to know. So I asked the question, Lord, what would I do then? What should I do under those circumstances? As soon as I asked that question, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I remembered that the words that came out of my friend's mouth was, I believe God wants you to go there and pastor. I interpreted that to mean pastor of that church. That's not, what the, that's not the witness that I originally got the witness that I got, the buzzer that went off on the inside of me was to go there and pastor. So Beth and I talked about it. I asked her, I said, what would we do if they called another pastor? She said, well, I don't know. What would we do? And I told her what I had and she said, well, yeah, that seems right to me too. So when I talked to my friend, he said, I've been delaying talking to you. The board has picked another pastor. No surprise whatsoever. I knew it already on the inside. I wouldn't admit that I knew it until I faced the the issue. But I just said, well, okay. Asked a couple of questions about who it was. I knew from what he told me that the, the, the direction the pastor was going would not take the church in any way in competition with anything that we would do. Two entirely different churches. Somebody that would want to be a part of that church wouldn't want to be a part of mine and vice versa. So we started making plans to come out here. Long story short, we wound up moving out at the the middle of December of 85 and started the church in January of 86. First six months was tough sledding. I mean, there was nobody coming and no money coming in. Beth was working at a department store. At the the Laguna Hills Mall, it's all since gone. I tried to get a job. The only job I could find was delivering beer and wine. (laughs) I didn't think that would go real well with what I was called to do. (laughs) But God took care of us. At the end of six months. We had an average of people coming in, maybe 10 people on a Sunday morning. Most Sunday nights and most midweek services, our services were on Thursday nights at that time. It's the only night of the week we could get to school. Most of those services was Beth singing to me, me (laughs) preaching to her. (laughs) There's not that much pull on an anointing when it's just your wife. But by the end of that first year, we had over 100 people in average attendance. And everything that we've done, everything that we ever will do, came as a result of that first inward witness. The spiritual perception first that something was going to change. And during that time that I knew that there was a change coming, people would start offering us churches. You need to realize when you sense a change coming, every open door is not God. There were some good churches that we were put in contact with. Good churches. One of them was in Chicago and had 1,200 people. I'm not sure I'd want to be in Chicago right now. But it just wasn't a place for us. But it all started from a spiritual perception. all started from the inward witness. Folks, whatever God has for you to do will start with an inward witness. Now think of the percentage, I hate to go negative here, but think of the percentage, the small percentage of Christians that know anything about an inward witness. I think how blessed we are to know the truth of the word. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says, despise not the day of small beginnings. I think that applies to the inward witness. Don't despise the inward witness, That's God leading you into the great things that He's got planned for your life. But it'll all start with that inward witness, that spiritual perception. It's not even enough to call the still small voice, but it's the Holy Ghost. Amen? Amen. Say it with me The Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Now, why don't you stand together with me and then say this after me I'm a child of God. The Holy Ghost dwells in me. me. Since Since I'm a child of God, I have a right to be led by the Holy Ghost. He bears witness with my spirit. He leads me and guides me by the inward witness. Jesus said, because I am his sheep, I would hear and know his voice. And a stranger I would not follow. I say that the Holy Ghost guides me into all truth and into all reality. And I always know God's plan for my life. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.